From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with my longtime collaborators, faculty colleagues, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner is not with us today. He's knocked up by some cold, not COVID. He tells us not COVID. He'll be back. He will be back. We got Shane in for the next hour or so. We're going to have Eric for the duration. Thank you guys for being here. We are coming to you via Zoom as we have been for the last two years. Also, as we have been doing for the last two years, we're going to start with a little COVID conversation, though I have to say, we have decided to start making room for other conversations. COVID's not going away, but the, the, the requirements, the knocking on the door is a little quieter now. So we're going to talk about things that caught our eye, and then we're going to open it up and talk about sports issues that caught our eye. Gentlemen, afternoon to you. We're recording on Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday, beginning in the world of COVID-19. What, if anything, has caught your eye in the last week? Well, I guess for me, you know, obviously the big news, especially it's because of we're in Philadelphia, is that Philly is the first major city to return to an indoor mask mandate. What's interesting about that, and this is just from a statistical or measurement perspective, is the rationale given is because the caseload has been increasing. The problem is, we've been talking about this for the last two years, of all the measurements that are the hardest to believe and the hardest to get precisely is that. And so everyone admits the death rate is still down. Not, by the way, any deaths are obviously horrible, but the death rate is considerably down. The hospitalization rate is also considerably down. There has not been any increase in those. It's due to these, I'll call it benchmarks that they developed. The number of reported cases is going up, but still at a relatively low level. That to me was surprising that the most errorful measure that we have, one that could, and Shane's been talking about this for two years, if we had random sampling, if we had a more objective, maybe wastewater testing, there's lots of other ways we could get more objective measures of the amount of COVID. It just seems like to take a very drastic measure like this one, which by the way, I'm not saying I'm not supportive of at some level. It just seems like doing it based on reported cases with self-selected data and non-random data seems quite problematic to me from a statistical perspective. Well, how about from a political economy perspective? What would be your analysis? I know it's not quite our forte, but what would be your analysis of why? Why, why did they do this? They sent benchmarks. They set, it actually was a deterministic function. It was, there was no, in some sense, leniency. If any of the following benchmarks hit, we go from stage one to stage two, which is what happened. When you're in stage two, you have indoor mass mandates. Now, if the policymakers want to change the benchmarks or leave latitude, or in some sense, you know, I'll call it Bayesianly update their beliefs based on where we are, that's a different thing. But literally, the data suggests that we're now stage two, not stage one. And stage two, it just, it's, it's kind of like an automatic kick in. The, the mass mandate kicked in. I just want to observe, we've been doing the show for eight years with a bunch of Bayesian statistics, and we've used the term Bayes in a lot of different forms. I'm not sure we've ever said Bayesianally. So good, good for the new conjugation. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I'm kind of torn on this. I mean, A, I, I, on, on the larger level, I do think at least decision-making with regards to kind of 
whatever public health measures we take. I like the fact that it's happening at the local level. Like, I think this is kind of the right resolution as, as this thing kind of goes up and down in different parts of the, I mean, I, I personally think it's kind of endemic and I, I think, you know, the, why, why we're reacting so strongly to little up and down ups and downs. I'm not quite sure, but like, at least to the extent that we're reacting as, as a society, I think the policy should be at this kind of local level, as opposed to at like the federal level or something like that, recognizing that, you know, the kind of, you know, the actual action on this is at the local level. But I mean, yeah, again, these particular benchmarks and this decision-making process seem Seem dumb. I mean, just stupid to me. I mean, it's, it's so like, is it the, the benchmark per se or having a benchmark? Because there's a there's a there, I kind of like having these objective criteria, which should take some of the politics of the I, moment. I, I, I like it. Objective in quotes, of course. But yeah, yeah, yeah but yeah. you can have an object. Here's the problem. And this is, I think, Shane's concern about and my concern from a statistical perspective. You have a quote unquote objective benchmark with extraordinarily noisy data. Yeah. So ba- what's based on a completely about made it? up statistic or outcome? Which okay. is like this case result, you know, case. Okay, load. so it's not the fact that there is a benchmark no. that automatically yeah. triggers this thing. If, 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 we, if we could estimate the true underlying problem, which we, we, we acknowledge we can't. So I guess, I guess, you know, is there a feasible thing we could actually benchmark? What would you choose based on hospitalization overload? Okay, but you probably choose forecasted hospitalization overload. Sure. Because you don't want to wait till it happens to do this thing, right? So you want somebody. Right. Sure. Sure. Okay. Um, I think that's important because then. I mean, again, once you forecast, it's a model base. It's not, I mean, when you say, I I mean, right. I mean, well, that's what I'm saying. Ideally, ideally, it's right. That forecast is going to be subjective inherently. I I agree with that. But I I like Cade's thinking here. In other words, you want the. Policymakers should always ask themselves, like we do as statisticians, certainly economists do this all the time too, is what's the counterfactual? So we have two policies, policy A and policy B. What's the difference in outcomes we expect to see under policy A versus policy B? Policy A is mask mandates, policy B is not. Then people can decide what's important. Is it worth a societal cost? We know that in having mass mandates is unlikely by the way, it's not zero probability. It's unlikely to increase the spread of COVID. It's unlikely to increase the number of hospitalization and deaths. The question is, how much could it lower it? But on the other hand, I could come up with a counterfactual argument that says people will be less careful if there's a mask mandate to the degree that people use ineffective masks. Separate issue, which I know uh, we've talked about a lot on this show. You know, if someone thinks, well, I'm going to use a surgical mask, well, that might have 20% efficacy. They haven't gone around and say, everyone, it's a N95 or KN95 mask mandate. So now you have to bring in the efficacy of the benchmark or the thing that you're bringing in too. So, you know, it's unclear. Yeah. And I mean, like, again, the fact that it's based on this incredibly noisy outcome that's not at all you know that's more tied to how much we're testing than it's tied to like anything else um you know and and the fact that it's based on a percentage like oh that things don't go up as you know like more than 25 percent is one of the things that i guess triggered this i mean the lower our overall covid rate is it's gonna the easier it is to hit that benchmark just with random cases right yeah, that's interesting. So you think that's just misguided to be percentage based? What if you're going to give them? So let's go. Let's go. Let's just take that point for a second. It's a good statistical point. If we had some, let's say, good forecast of 
hospital is local hospitalization overload. If we like yeah. that as a benchmark. Um, now you're not interested in, since you've chosen such a good benchmark, you don't need percent. Income. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're kind of doing it relative to sort of more of a structural kind of, yeah, capacity. Yeah. you know, there's kind yeah. of a fixed kind of denominator or capacity that you're kind of doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's still not, I still think it's kind of, I, I, I think it, I mean, though I came up with this benchmark and I'm all for it. I, like, I think there's still flaws in it in that I feel like hospitals themselves you know, hospital capacity overload, as I'm defining it, is also a function of like, I mean, hospitals cut costs all the time. I mean, hospitals design their operations such that they're right under capacity at all times, as far as I can tell, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, it, it's kind of like, you know, the kind of capitalist hospital society we live in, basically, it's designed to, uh, you know, uh, is optimally efficient when you're just under capacity. I love and it. So, when like the, any, professor... any small perturbations, like you know, are are uh, are are going to potentially put you risk of capacity overload. I, I, I love it when Wharton professors take shots at capitalism. That's can I can I have a second thing? Observation, not a value <laughs> statement. Do I get a second thing that caught my eye about COVID, which is I just saw a data set that suggested that the reinfection rate. Now it's changed, by the way, in the earlier variants of COVID. This is another thing that's changed over time. The uh, reinfection rates were around less than one half of 1% in the earlier versions of COVID, alpha, delta. What's what, on you had COVID? What's the chances you're going to get it again? What any, fraction of people? Any, any, any type of COVID, any variant of COVID? It's a good question. Uh, it, well, I, in those I earlier days, it was only one variant. Yeah, I don't know. the. I, I think the number I just said under one half of 1%, that was from the variant that there was. The, okay. da- the data that I've now seen from Omicron and BA2, and I looked at this in a number of different places, it appears to be about 5% now. Now, the implication of that is quite interesting. Um, one of the things that I read, I read a New York Times article about it today, talked about you know, at some point, people had this belief of herd immunity. But of course, the premise of herd immunity is if you get it, you ain't getting it again. But actually, that's actually now been not only disproven, but I think most people would consider a 5% reinfection rate. And by the way, I haven't told you over what period of time. You know, it could be 5% over a three-month period of time, which means it's 15% or some number like that over a year. I think that's big news that the reinfection rate is with the newer variants is as high as it is. Eric, that is it. That's information to you only in the precision, right? Because we've known this has been going on. It's not surprising. In no, it's, the amount is not right. The fact that it happens is not at all surprising. I would not probably have guessed that it's uh, as high as it is. And also the other interesting part is, is that the, um, yeah. I'm still on the same topic. I was just going to say the vaccine doesn't appear to moderate the size of this effect either. Well, that's what I'm going at. Like put reconcile or at least tell me how they're related. The 5% reinfection rate and the protection we've been talking about and the declining protection we've been kind of commiserating about in the vaccine. So we've been saying, look, um, protection against reinfection is actually really quite poor that you get some protection against hospitalization quite good early on, even that degrades over time. But given how poor we've been talking about protection against infection being from the vaccines, why is 5% surprising to you? In fact, it, 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 I might've even thought it was bigger than that, given how. But that 5%, I mean, just to clarify, if that is does kind of come from the early days of COVID, a that's pre-vaccine, and that's kind of should you know if if I'm understanding that 
correctly, that kind of represents reinfection with the same variant. It's kind of almost a lower bound, I would guess. Yeah, it's reinfection, reinfection with the same. Right. It's reinfection given you've had COVID. What's yeah. the chances you get reinfected? Well, there's only I mean, typically there hasn't been many periods where there's been more than one variant around at a time. I mean, yes, no, no, no. But, but I mean, not- given that you've already had covid, the next wave, which is a new variant, is probably even more likely to reinfect you or, or right. Yes. Yes. Like when we're talking the, about it within a person over time. The reinfection each each time is we, we were kind of probably yes. thinking that each time was kind of due to a new variant mostly and it probably mostly still is yeah this five percent represents kind of the baseline of even if the covid was not changing over time this is the reinfection yeah, it, rate within one per, within within person it's hard to imagine the same same reinfection rate isn't lower than the different same different reinfection rate and so if it's five percent from people omicron to omicron or ba2 to ba2 someone that had delta to omicron has to be higher than that it just it would just it would just have to be right and i mean certainly we 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 uh um but that kind of self self specific rate we if this is our only estimate of it it's not really relative to the vaccine specifically because this was all pre-vaccine right no 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 this is no no no. so the new york state uh, study that i just read was uh done in 2022 so this was a 2022 study or at least it was published in january of 2022 so the end of 2022 looking at the reinfection rate of like 135,000 people in the state of new york who had gotten covid and them tracking them i just continue not to have any intuition for this because also the population, I mean, this is highly conditional on having had it before. No, but um, that's so what that, a reinfection rate means. That's I know, what I mean. But it, but it could, there's, I, a, there's, a select, there's a select sample of people who have it. They're, they're behaviorally yeah. distinct from those who don't have it. And so I'm guessing they're behaviorally distinct after having it. Behaviorally well. and physiologically. It could be and that physiologically actually, the population, you know, this 5% is some kind of like, I mean, you know, it could be there's a mixture distribution where for most people, it's close to 0% for self-self reinfection, but there's just a certain percent, you know, percentage of the population that is more prone to I will say with certainty, there is massive heterogeneity. And I will say with certainty, it's likely to be a mixture distribution. And now the question is, what is that mixture components of what are the two? One, obviously, by definition of a mixture, one component has to be significantly, probably significantly less than 5%. And one is probably maybe marginally higher than 5%, but just includes a you know large fraction of people potentially Here, here's a fun selection bias that i've been th- thinking about as we've been talking about this the people that are in this category where they get reinfected i think they actually have a lower than average probability of a serious health consequence from it because, because they've they already died. been infected by whole covid and not had a serious health consequence you know they're they're they're, they're they as a group are less likely to die from covid yeah, from the, that reinfected COVID because, because they didn't, yeah, die, they didn't from, die the from first COVID the first time around. Yeah, let's just say the following. I think we all agree that there's a lot of interesting conditional probabilities that this marginal statistic I've given you does yeah. not answer. Yeah. And there's lots of things we'd love to condition on and know how this probability varies as a function of that. Guys, on this front, um, I got my fourth shot last week. Uh, went ahead. I, I, it wasn't a hard. I didn't. I nice. just never thought there was much drama around this thing. I, I look. It's they've not bothered me. I don't think there's any risk to me at this point of getting one. And I think there's some protection. It had been six months since I had my first booster. Everybody was saying, look, you're 
protection against hospitalization is down, you know, to 30 or 40% efficacy versus what it was in the beginning. And so, you know, why is there it. even a question about whether this is increased? Well, or we've debated on this show. With not, not, no I, I, mean, I, I think it's all, it's, it's only, you know, that kind of, forecast of if if kind of a more new variant kind of specific that's, newer that's, variant specific vaccine came out in the next no, I can't, Kate will get that one too he'll have five yeah, no, no I mean again I you know that that's right that's right I, you know when when I'm eligible for the fourth booster I'll, I'll grab it as well probably and unless unless I you know there is sort of like you know I, I have solid kind of information then that 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 newer vac, you know kind of updated vaccine is and I'm with you way. Shane as soon as I'm eligible I will get it as well. So, gentlemen, if that is what we've had kind of on our attention for COVID, why don't we turn our attention even here in Q1 to the broader sports world and ask, okay, guys, what about sports? And let me give you, let me lead with one because I got one just this afternoon. It's going to be in the sport that you want. I mean, it's all about baseball right now, mostly, right? Uh, that's not what I would have talked about, but go ahead. Well, I was talking I about wanna, the Masters, but go ahead. I don't want to talk about the Masters yet because I want to talk about the Masters in more detail when we have a little bit more time. So later in the show, we'll pick up the Masters. But I, I watched, I was, we're going to have a conversation later today with Benjamin Robinson, who, um, who, does, a, who does work on the draft, especially mock drafts. And I was looking at Benjamin's stuff up on Twitter lately, and he, had a, had a, he retweeted something from the Reds. And it was, they had their first baseman mic'd up. And it was the second time I'd seen these baseball players mic'd up on the field while playing the game. They're actually doing interviews with guys in the booth while playing the game. Now, look, I'm the Martian when it comes to watching baseball because I don't do that much of it. But I was really surprised by this and hugely entertained by it. Is this the way baseball gets new watchers? And is it that new? Is this new 2022? It's pretty new. I mean, I saw. I, I mean, I saw it. I think they had Kiki Hernandez mic'd up during the Red Sox Yankees game uh, on Sunday. Like I, I saw it kind of over the weekend, and I was a little surprised. I think it is pretty new to have them kind of mic'd up uh, in, in essentially discussing or getting interviewed while play while play is going. I remember Kiki being like, "Oh my goodness, that's coming to me!" Like runs off. You know, it's sort of like I, you know. Uh, so no, I think it is quite new. New, um, but. Uh, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of fun and exciting, assuming it doesn't detract from actual performance. Actual I mean, performance? you, can, you yeah. can imagine like not, not, you probably wouldn't want the pitchers mic'd up. I feel like they got to right. really focus or the catcher or something like that. But, you know, it's certainly true. Like, I mean, if you kind of think about, you know, those little league games, I would always get stuck in the outfield because, you know, it was the least, you know, it was the place I could least do the, do, do da- the, the less likely the ball's going to come to me and less, yeah. you know, my fielding's less damaging, damaging up there. So, you know, I, I you know, a player that isn't necessarily going to be involved in the pl- every Well, play. no, the, the, the one I was watching is Joey, Vo- Joey Voto, Joey, Vo- Joey Votto, 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 Joey Votto, first baseman. Yeah. He's got, he's even got a guy, you know, he's even holding him on the bag for a little while. It's just <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. And the thing I'm most blown away by is the level of experience and expertise and repetitions you have to have to be able to do something at that level while adding something else to the task. Yeah. I mean, I think this is, this is almost mm-hmm. the measure of experience with the task is that you can automate certain things and move on and add additions. And early on in a task is like, I mean, I could barely keep time on this show when we started doing it eight years ago. And, you know, after a few years, I was really slow, but after a few years, I kind of could keep time now, but I have the same issue. Anytime I'm 
in front of an audience. It's like the newer the environment, the fewer tasks I can juggle at the same time. Here's Joey Votto playing major league baseball and doing an interview simultaneously. I'm like, yeah. that's and it just, it's it just goes so, so much of his, yeah. So much of his muscle memory. It does. I guess it just does not require the extent amount of active attention that, you know, it, it would require that we would be required that would require uh, right. from us to do that same thing. It's it just is, a, it is kind of fascinating. It's a hallmark of expertise. And so they're showing us that in a way by talking to these guys real time. I, I hope they keep doing it. I thought it was great fun. I, I wonder what the, you purest baseball guys thought about it. So it sounds like we have at least one enthusiast in the room. I'm thinking I, I'm fine with Eric that. Is the, like, other, the other thing kind of in terms of like kind of more, I mean, this isn't the, the same thing, but the other thing advanced that I've really like enjoyed seeing so far is that the umpires, now that we, we've had replay for a few years, but it was, you know, in typical baseball fashion, some weird version of replay where the umpires like would just give like a, a signal that would still keep us confused. Now they actually have to explain themselves like in every other sport. OK, you know what, ha- what they actually reviewed, what they decided, et cetera. They actually have to talk to, okay. you know, talk to the fans and players as opposed to just making some obscure hand signal. So that I you, think is also an advance. Yeah. I'll tell you what I would love. Could you imagine? They'll never do this, but could you imagine if up on the screen after each pitch, you know, the umpire calls ball strike, but it actually put up on the screen what it actually was? Yeah. Yeah. Well, no, the reason we say why I like it, first of all, it'd be entertaining. Secondly, speaking of Bayesianly update, Kate, if we want to use Bayesianly again, an umpire could go, oh my God, I missed that one. You know, I'm obviously missing the, I'm going to get better in this game. I'm not going to wait to some film study thing after the game, which may cost the team the game. I'm just saying, as you're saying, as a fan, I'm talking, I'm a purist in baseball. I'd love it if umpires could improve during the, if the umpire calling balls and strikes could improve during the game. Okay. So here's a question. That's your objective. Would you really want to give them pitch by pitch feedback or would you give them feedback like between half innings or something? Between half innings is fine. Okay. Um, Cause, oh, cause you're I, saying, I, you're I saying just meant from I'm, a fan point of view, I think fans would love it. You know, I, I'm just talking about something yeah. to make the game more exciting that wouldn't, by the way, take more time. Why don't we step it up? And if, why don't we keep score for the ump? And basically if after he collects enough missed calls, he's out and they bring in a yeah. new one and they get a new yeah. count on the new one. Tossed or, or we could just wait for like, I, I think you, I mean, this is very much not something the purists are going to agree with, but Let's not overly focus on training umps for a position where they're about to be replaced by robots anyway, right? <laughs> I mean, again, I this whole that. idea of umpires cause, calling balls and strike, why? I mean, this, the, this technology you just mentioned, we, you know, basically is predicated on the fact that we can correctly call it right. every time. Right. And so if we can do that, why aren't we doing that? Give me an over-under on how long until Major League Baseball has – the default they'll not have someone there to override it or whatever, but the default would be a computer calling balls and strikes. How many years until that happens? Five, five years. I mean, the technology exists now. It's just, you know, how long it takes for the purist to, you think it's good. Eric, did you over under on five years over? Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Because I think there's, there'll be a concern that it will, you know, even more sterilize a game that's already, you know, Oh, interesting. Uh, that's what, but not from a technology, as you said, Kate. Okay, it can be done right now. I think it'll be over five years. Huh. 
All right. So guys, just in the last couple of minutes here, anything, I know know we have to wait for, you know, like two months or something before there's a signal in these one loss records in major league baseball. Is there any news, any signals over the first weekend? I mean, I mean, other than like a lot of fun baseball, I mean, it's true. You know, I mean, I I could overinterpret like this past weekend as the Yankees having a better bullpen than the Red Sox. And they probably, that, that probably will be justified even a couple months from now. I mean, but no, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, baseball is back and I'm really excited about it. And I, I don't need two months to tell you that um, the Tampa Bay Rays play a type of baseball that I, really angers me. Um, and, 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 and I, to the point where I, I'm not sure I actually might prefer the Yankees to the Rays. Okay. Say more, say more about that. What are you talking about? Well, again, they've taken, I mean, you know, and I, it, the well, part of the reason it angers say- me is it's very analytically motivated. They're, they're, they're using our beautiful tools to make a boring, even more boring version of the game. Okay, look, those guys have that, won more games per dollar than any other club for the last. I'm oh, say I'm not. It's it's effective. Yeah. I'm not. Uh, you know, it, it, they're using analytical tools to play a more effective form of baseball. Just that effectiveness turns out to be in directions that make the game more boring. What's an example? Ex- aggressive shifting okay. um, to take away balls in play and pitching individual pitchers a minimal amount of of of, of pitches even their starting Which, pitchers rarely go you know they pulled their uh, starting pitcher over the weekend he had 67 pitches and they pulled him after three and a half innings or something like that or three do they third. start them on the same cadence they just work them less or do they start them more frequently they might start them more frequently i mean they, they basically have gotten rid of starting uh, you know more or less right. phasing out starting pitcher as a concept and it's just going to be the Tampa so they can Bay have like a four man rotation is like, no, it's like two, no, you know, it's you, like you a, could, a 15 man rotation. That's what I was going to say. Innings a piece. I mean, a four man yeah, starting you, rotation. Cause well, you know, but I think starting I, means but again, them. if you can't pay for it, as Shane said, you can find 15 pitchers yeah. that are each worth, you know, two to $4 million a year. You can find them. Those people are not, I'm say a dime a dozen, but you know, th- not everyone can be, you know, uh, you know, Kershaw or Garrett yeah. Cole, or you have so to don't pay... sign those people. You yeah. can't sign those people for the price of Garrett Cole. I can get 10 guys that can each yeah. throw 95. They can each go two or three innings and I'm done. Yeah. Or, or put it another way. You have to pay a, pre- they've realized that you have to pay a premium for pitchers that are good enough to get through the order three times or more. Yeah. And so right. they just so don't, don't, don't have that. They're like, these guys are out after two, like but one what, time through the. But like, what they also do, Shane, very well is because they're very good at using okay. analytics and also drafting players, they get extremely high trade value for people near the end of their rookie contracts. And so they can keep perpetuating the engine by drafting yeah. good players who they can't they afford to resign. They might as well trade them. They get a lot of value back because these people have demonstrated in three or four years that they can play. It's actually a good perpetual oh, motion yeah. no, machine. No, I mean, I mean, again, I can't, you, it's hard to argue with the on-field success in terms of win games, one loss on low payroll. But it's just further kind of making the game more boring because it's a it's emphasizing strongly pitching over hitting, you know, so you're just going to get lower amounts of offense. And it also I mean, part of what we enjoy about baseball is this pitcher batter kind of matchup through the extent of a game and you just take that away. Well, you're talking about a couple of dimensions that are now considered for rule changes, right? So the, the defensive shifts are going to be limited in some way at some point. We, yep, that's right. Next season, they're going to limit the shifting. And then yep. this, there's been a lot of talk about 
a way of handling pitchers differently, like a minimum number of pitches or batters or, min, or maximum number of transitions. And so at least those two are going to be addressed. Of course, those, the Rays will still be hard up against those limits, right? They'll be those constraints are reminding for those guys. All right, guys, why don't we call that for Q1? We've still got a lot to talk about. We have three quarters in front of us. Come back, um, come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM, rolling into the second quarter now. I'm here. This is Kate Massey with my colleagues and buddies, longtime Wharton Moneyball collaborators, Eric Bradlow and Shane Jensen. You guys can jump in in a way. Hit us up on Twitter. Probably the simplest way to reach us. At W Moneyball is our handle there, at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics, and we love to hear from you. We get questions, ideas, complaints, enthusiasms, whatever you got, hit us up on at W Moneyball. You can also write us. We have a mailbag via email. Our email address is moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upenn.edu. Guys, I think uh, at least Eric and I have the same cut your eye moment for the rest of the world of sports. The Masters was this weekend. The man, I don't know what kind of pipeline they have to the universe, but they get some sweet weather on Sundays more often than not. And you're looking for that, especially if you're up in the North, this perfect spring. And we had one on Sunday. Now, look, Sheffer walked away with this thing more or less. Mostly we like majors that, you know, on the back nine, there's five different guys in contention and it goes back and forth. This was not that at all. On the other hand, we like it when people really dominate. So where do you put this? How much did you like it? It was Scotty Shuffler's first major. He has been on a run, which we'll talk about more in a second, but just in general, how would you rate the appeal and drama of this masters? Well, let me just cut just a couple things quickly. Let's remember um, Cam Smith, birdied the first two holes when we got to the third hole uh there was a one-shot lead the lead was down to one and also uh Scheffler hit a shot where if that ball doesn't go into the hole off from he chips it off the green it may go 15 feet past the hole or run off the green so let's be clear at the third hole the outcome of the Masters was still very much in doubt. And even by the 12th hole, you know, I always play the counterfactual. If Scheffler hits the shot that Smith hit on the 12th, which is always the hole that ends the Masters for somebody, you know, if he hits it in the water, he had a three-shot lead going into 12. You heard what Tiger Woods said, and, you know, no one knows the Masters better than Tiger Woods. He says, I just want to be within five or six going into the back nine. Give myself a chance. And you know what? I, I thought it was very exciting. Obviously, 13 to 18 was a coronation. There was no way he was going to lose the Masters up five or six. It just wasn't. And McElroy was great, wasn't going to catch him. And at the end of the day, you know what it says? I've been right for the last eight years. The guy has momentum. And I'm telling you, he's got in golf, his form is locked in. He's, he knows how long to hit his shots. And so you don't have to call it momentum. You could just call it his game has very low variance right now. He knows how long he's going to hit his irons. He, his form is intact. He can repeat his shots. I don't want to call it momentum, but he's locked in. He looked really great. He, he was the best player there. Yeah, and I mean, I, I also, I think, uh, I think you kind of understood the drama a little bit, Kate. But I, I understand where, because just as Eric was sort of saying, I think Scheffler always 
had an aura that he was, I mean, he, he was just such an impressive consistent player all four i think he was the only player that was under the uh, under under par every round and maybe that last round because he missed those couple of putts at 18 maybe he just went over but he basically i think was the only player under par all four rounds he was just a paragon of consistency which is very impressive um but and i i think maybe that kind of gave us sort of a little bit of a sense of a lack of drama because he was so stable and you kind of knew he'd be right. at the end it's but good. there was drama of the people kind of moving around and ra- moving around them i mean cam smith was an incredibly exciting player to watch all weekend i mean the mm-hmm. highs were high and the lows were low <laughs> right. you know well that's because and, he can't he can't keep the driver in the fairway but he can putt from anywhere I yeah mean, it's just it's just remarkable yeah, no, and I mean it's interesting that kind of chef were kind of pulled ahead of him with a short, essentially with short game at the, you know, on on number three or whatever it was. It was kind of mm-hmm. a, it was so fun, interesting to see them basically both have almost the exact same shot, and yep. Scheffler kind of luckily holds it out from there, and Cam I think uh, took like three shots to get out from there, and that was like a two or three stroke sh- swing right there. But right. yeah, no, I mean I thought, and and I mean kudos to Rory McIlroy for making that insane run on Sunday. I think he was like seven over seven under for the round. No, he was. Yes. Yes. But let's also remember. So this is, I look at his round a little differently and it was classic Rory McIlroy. So let's, so he was minus six. Scheffler was at minus 10 going to the 14th. Pars the 14th, the 15th hole. He can hit an iron and still hit it to the green. He drives it into the woods. Now he can't make the par five and two. It's a 510-yard hole. McElroy can hit a drive 350. He doesn't hit the drive in the fairway. 16, you hit it up the bank, it rolls down. He missed that. He didn't get a good shot. He missed the putt. 17 now. He pars 17. Luckily, hits a great escape shot. So while, yes, McElroy did, let's assume he hadn't chipped it in on 18. He would have ended the Masters par, 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 par par that's not i i was not impressed by mcelroy not in the slightest when it really no, I mean, counted I, five you, pars you're saying you made a good run to get remotely in contention and as soon as he got kind of within sniffing distance his run stopped correct and this is kind of the and, I, and also that i, I mean I, I i completely acknowledge that he often makes he has to make spectacular shots to get himself out of trouble when he could just be a little bit more conservative or cautious with what he's doing. Yeah. If he had hit a three wood on 15, for example, he can still hit his three wood 300 yards. Okay. So he won't have 160 to the par five. He'll have 180 to the par five, but it'll be in the middle of the fairway with much higher probability. I was actually, I just like, it's no risk at no biscuit kind of. No, I I like, I I, I like that Bruce Arians connection. Um, (laughs) But again, I just, either way, he played fine. 65 on the Masters on Sunday is still 65 or 64. I forget which of the two. And he had no bogeys. So that was really impressive. But at the end of the day, he had a chance with five holes left and he didn't do what he needed to do. Yeah. Let's talk about what we're seeing from Sheffer right now. He's won four of his last six starts, which is unusual. And let's be clear. He had won none of his starts prior to that. Matter of fact, he was known as a choker because his first three times he led going into the final round, he lost all three of them. So well, I, just want to, I understand what? it's not 20, match. It's not 20, but he, I'm just saying, he was questioning, like, will he ever win a tournament? Oh, come on. He was, he's 25 years old. No one was saying whether he's ever going to win a tournament. He, he, you got to give much longer history of not showing up on Sundays than that. Scheffler was chosen for the Ryder Cup, for God's sake, just last fall without having any w- victories. Um, now, look, I'm a little defensive. He's a longhorn. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the mat for this guy. But 
he goes, Eric's point is, I think he has the shortest distance from first win to number one in the world. Not by a little bit. I mean, like by years. His was 50, no, his was 57 days. And I think the next shortest was like 230 days. Yeah. Okay. So not, not quite a year, but just immense, just much quicker ascension. Um, and then he wins four out of six. And these are not random four. the world golf championships The just, you know, I mean, match play for God's sake. He won that thing and then wins the masters. Um, how should we think about this? I mean, how, one, how do, how does it even occur? I mean, these guys are generally so evenly matched and there's so many of them. How is it that one guy goes out in the field of a hundred masters? Wasn't quite a hundred. Most tournaments are more than a hundred goes out in those fields and wins two, you know, now, two out of three I, for a couple of I, months. I've seen, but here's the thing. I've seen it before. Um, and this is what happens in golf. Like I remember in my early twenties, I remember this is before the, the internet really. I remember, but you turn in on CBS on Sunday and you see who's in the lead. There was a stretch in 91 and 92. You knew Fred Couples was going to be in the lead in every tournament you turned on the television. He was just going to win. And then he, by the way, it culminated with him winning the Masters. And, you know, forget Tiger Woods, the different beast. I've seen stretches where John Rahm, Dustin Johnson, etc. So I think, I think he's a great golfer. Um, I think he plays extraordinarily well, but the fact that he's had a very tight streak, maybe four out of six is a little unexpected. That's just a huge number of wins in six tournaments. But the fact is that, you know, somebody would play well in a really short period of time. Not surprising. Yeah. And I mean, I think uh, just to kind of build on that, I think, I think the four out of six victories, there's a lot of noise in that or stochasticity in that. So, I mean, I think what I think Eric's kind of saying is that I think we've seen before, and I mean, it's still very impressive, his ascent, but like, you know, somebody playing kind of like a, you know, at a top, you know, the person being at a top 10 level for, you know, a a kind of extended period of time, the way he has like Fred couple. I love that reference because I I was watching a lot of golf back in the early nineties. That's fantastic. Um, The fact that, you know, he specifically has converted so many into victories. I think that's where the, probably there's a luck component to it. That's where you and I agree. I mean, Scheffler has convinced me he's a top, he's certainly playing like a top 10 golfer in the world right now. And he has no, I have no reason to doubt that he's not going to pl- continue to play at that level for, for the you know next like few tournaments or maybe for the next year or two. But you know, even the a top 10 golfer, even Tiger Woods in his at his at his at his in his heyday was not necessarily uh, making you know winning like four out of six, like over half the tournaments he's in. And so that part, I think there's some amount of luck involved. I think what's amazing, that's what I was saying as well, is that his conversion rate has been really high. You know, I started to wonder, Shane, what do you think? I mean, is he a Hall of Famer now? Scott Scheffler? Yeah. I mean, he won the Ryder Cup. He's won the Masters. There's many of golfers that are in the Hall of Fame with one major. By the way, Fred Couples, one major. Mm -hmm. Paul Azinger? One major. Now, maybe he needs to win more than tournaments. 10, yeah, 15, I would, 20 I would say, I think, I, I, I mean, I, I certainly don't think you need to win multiple masters to get into the Hall of Fame. And I have to kind of actually look at sort of, you know, again, where, 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 where that kind of, you know, where that cut point historically has been. I don't, I don't think you need to win multiple majors, be recognizing that stochasticity in, in the process. But like, I do think you have to have a more sustained you know, kind of level, you know, you have to sustain a level of excellence for several years. I think if, if, if you're going to be the type that's in the, in the hall of all fame 
with only like one major victory, for example, I think, I mean, like Fred couples, obviously, even if he only had one major had such a, a sustained period of excellence for many, yeah. many years. And so I well, think that that's something I, 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 you know, I certainly, if he keeps playing at this level for the next few years, no doubt, no doubt about well, it. Let's move on to the next, let's move on to the, uh, let's move on to the next major of the year, which is at, you know, which is the PGA coming up. Um, how do you see that? And do you make Scotty Scheffler the favorite? I mean, you kind of have to, I, I mean, you know, again, if I, you know, I, I would make him the favorite going in just based on the fact that he's playing so well and his game is, is, is as you kind of talked about it, it's sort of like one thing that might be kind of unique about him and we'll kind of see like, has he unlocked maybe, maybe again, I'm over, we're, I'm over reading kind of the positive outcomes, but has he unlocked some way of doing kind of a more consistent style of, of golf play that maybe not only within a tournament, leads to more success because that consistency obviously and that's why you and i both believe when he had a four or five shot lead given the consistency of his game he was going to win that masters he 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 was going to win it he took it the drama out of it after like the third hole basically when he reopened that lead he took like that point there was minimal drama involved in my mind just because he was like you know i was watching with a friend and my friend doesn't watch golf as often as we do and he's like oh well is this, you know, lead insurmountable? And I'm like, well, historically, no, because players can choke and, 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 you know, you can have three or four shot swings. He just wasn't playing like that was going to happen basically. And so, yeah. And I, and I think to the extent that that consistency transfers to, you know, the next few tournaments, I would have to place him as the favorite for the PGA acknowledging that again, any one favorite, still does not have a particularly high probability of winning at all. Right. I mean, you probably, you wouldn't give them greater than 10 to one odds, right? No, definitely not. Definitely not. Yep. So guys, I'm, I'm back after a little power outage here in central Austin. I come in from the country to be more reliable with utilities and then the city of Austin lets me down. So apologies for that. I'm glad you're still in the masters. I want to share one more thing about the masters. I was poking around, Golf data, golfdata.com is this extraordinary site. This guy started this thing up in the last year or two. And I was looking for evidence of essentially a regime shift because Eric calls it momentum. And we've talked about golf being the, the sport, golf being the sport where you most see um, recent performance mattering. And, and we so often think that momentum is overdone in sports. It's possible that it matters more in individual sports than it does in team sports. There's one hypothesis for you. But I remember, again, another Chance Magazine memory from grad school. When the Sammy Sosa-Mark McGuire home run contest, you know, was going on all season long. And there was a third one. Who was the third guy in that era? Those are the two big. Palmero, right around them? Maybe, maybe the, he, back, he might have been the he might have been the one in this. Well, there was Sosa, McGuire, and Bonds. I mean, those were all the same era where they were. I mean, that Sosa McGuire set the record. I feel and like then bon, yeah, Bonds my, broke my it two years later. Yeah, Bonds so, broke it like two or three years later. So there was a statistician who tried to estimate regime shifts in batting using those guys' um, stats, and they they did. They were he would, and I'm I'm curious to ask you guys as statisticians if. Because right now, when you model golf, these guys are just putting some kind of decay function on that thing where last week matters more than the week before matters more than the week before. And they probably have some parametric form, all that stuff. But think about a different model where you say there are, there are, there are periods that a guy will shift into playing at a different level. This is like the regime shift model. And then 
it's not that there's autocorrelation that last performance matters more than next than the one before. It's that the whole thing is just shifted is the way I, th- I think about regime shifts anyway. And so I'm asking, is there any chance that we see this in golf and how, how would you estimate that by the way? What's the right way? And Shane, I know you do work on cluster analysis and it begins to feel a little bit to me like we're at least related to cluster analysis. Cause you're saying this, this performance in this time period is more like each itself than it is performance in a different time period. Well, the only thing I would say is that usually cluster analysis, you might be clustering people. This is more of, this is more of a time series nature, but let me just say you can fit a model that has both a regime shift and autocorrelation in it. There's nothing that would stop you from saying there's a good shot Scotty Scheffler and a not as good Scotty Scheffler. Let's say even a hidden Markov model. He's in the hot state or the cold state. But when he's in the hot state, then last week's performance still affects this next week's performance or it adds predictive power, but just we're starting at a higher baseline. And actually, that is my belief about what happens in golf. I think people go through hot and cold spells. I think there is autocorrelation from week to week. And um, if I were Scotty Scheffler, my advice to him was, he says it's going to take a couple of weeks off. No, keep playing, yeah. my man. Because you know role, what? Keep that role going. I mean, poor guy's yeah. probably really tired. I mean, on the one I... hand, he's really tired. He needs rest. But I will say, I do actually believe that, and, and we've stu- we studied this, by the way, in marketing and purchase propensities. When people have periods of time that they don't play or don't purchase, the decay keeps happening even though they've kind of rested or they're not purchasing at the moment. So I th- do I think Scotty Scheffler will lose some quote-unquote autocorrelation momentum by not playing? I do. It might be overwhelmed by the value of rest because the guy's got to be exhausted. Yeah, no, and I mean, like, uh, the, the other part I'll kind of add in here is I, I think there's tweak autocorrelation, and I love this kind of regime change idea, but I think we're almost under-applying it because, it, it we're, you know, it's not just necessarily regime change in, like, a mean, a, a difference in mean performance, but, again, the ver- like, the variance of players, I think, yeah. that's something where you could have a regime change, too. I, like, I, like, maybe he's in a regime of kind of extra consistency relative relative to what he usually experiences and certainly relative to what you see in other players currently. Yeah. And I think that, I think that's right. And it's interesting and it's a different dimension. And it's not one people usually look at because it could just be yeah. a meat shift up, but it could just be a reduction in bad performance, which would be a great way to play a good round of golf. But I looked at the data. I went to data.golf and you can look at, they look at players and from every possible angle, but you can look at their performance over the last three years or so by like true stroke, true strokes gain. And you can look at a part of their game or their whole game. So just look at the whole game, every round they've played for the last three years compared to any benchmark you want, you know, average PGA or top 50, top 10 or whatever. And you look at what Scotty's done since late 21, late last year. And he's been his, his, they give you a moving average of his rounds of golf. The smallest bend size they'll give you is 10 rounds. And if you look at his 10 round moving average, since it, it was right about league average, at the end of 21 and then it's just been drifting up and it's been playing with like four strokes on the league average it's been playing with that much outperforming the field really for the last few months now and it's just it's definitely the peak performance in his career and you got i mean this is kind of what i want to know like how yeah it, it, it would be awesome to kind of put that kind of deviation in exactly historical context i mean if, i'm sure some of those tiger gears you must have been seeing that at various well, points so good shane this is exactly where we went I, the first guy i thought about because 
Eric said, it doesn't surprise me because I've seen it, you know, saw it with Freddie Couples or whatever. I agree. It's kind of a known thing about golf. In fact, Tiger, was it Tiger? I think it was Tiger who talked about, I shouldn't attribute it to Tiger. It might not have been. Someone this weekend said, man, I know what Scotty's feeling. It's this wonderful place where you string together a few good months. And sometimes it happens to match with a major and it's all the better when it matches with a major. But people know that you get into these essentially regime shifts. The first person I thought about was Colin Morikawa because he, now his, it turns out he won a master. He won a major in two different, two different years, both 20 and 21. But I went back just for comparison to look at him and the same kind of thing The he won his first, he won the PGA in 20. And he wasn't in one of these regime shift looking things, at least not if you look at the 10 round average of strokes gained on the field. But if you look at when he won his British open in 21, He's in this massive one. It's the biggest bubble of his career. And he's playing And again, you know, it's not quite as big as Scotty's, by the way. It's two and a half, three round strokes per round. But it's still this distinct regime shift where his performance against the PGA is like never, it never drips below like a the 10 round average doesn't below like a stroke per round. So it's just an advantage out there. And this is what I'm wondering about. Like how much there's so many guys and they're so close. How much better does one have to be to start winning four out of six tournaments? And I know you would never expect it. And so it's maybe not as big as it looks after the fact, but it still has to be some marginal difference. It has to be some kind of difference, significant difference to the field for him to be doing this well. I think, I think even as Shane talked about earlier, I think it's hard to be top five in four out of six tournaments. Forget just about winning them. And right. so I think that that's a really high streak. And I think one other thing I will say relates to also to Tiger. Part of the reason why it, we study this in marketing too, as well, and lots of problems, is that it's probably harder to detect for Tiger because he's so good all the time. And so if you're so good all the time, how much better can you play? So it's hard to detect extremes when you're already in the extreme of the distribution. All right, guys, the NBA playoffs start tonight. We're recording on Tuesday, the, one of the playoff games, the first of the two play-in games. Eric understands the structure. I think this is a 7-8, Matt, play-in. Is that yeah, just quickly, 7-8 plays, 9-10 plays. Winner of the 7-8 is automatically the 7 seed. The winner of the 9-10 game plays the loser of the 7-8 game for the 8th spot. Right. So the 9-10s have to win two in a row to make it to the playoffs, and the 8 gets a second chance to win. That's a 7-8 loser gets a second chance, but gets the host, regardless of which one of those two wins or loses, the, lo- the other person has to play gets the home game in the, against the 9-10 team. Okay. And, of course, these all f- for the right to play the number one seed with the actual One or the smoked, two seed. Get yeah, smoked one. in the first round. But I well, mean, I, I, I don't cool. know. I don't know about that. I mean, remember – Right now, the seven seed in the East is the Nets. How would you like to be the two Seriously. seed? The Seriously. Nets win tonight, mm-hmm. and now you get the – that's your bonus prize? You get the Nets in the first round? I'm not sure that's so fantastic. And by the way, the nine seed in the East is the Hawks. Let's say the Hawks win that game, and then the Hawks move on and advance to the 7-8 game, and then they end up being the eight seed. Didn't the Hawks go to the finals or the Eastern Conference finals last year? They beat the Sixers, right? They went to the – so it could be that the Nets and last year's Eastern Conference finals team are the 7 and 8 seed. So let me just say, it's it's not going to be so easy. The West is different. The West, the top teams in the West are really yeah, good. Yeah, I mean, I, right. And I mean, I, I agree. I think you've – I mean, I, you've got me hyped because I, I, I love upsides <laughs> of basketball. I just – base rates – 
How many times has a seven or eight seed won in the first round? I know, but the Nets, you can't really call them a seven or eight seed. I mean, they didn't play with Kyrie Irving. Simmons may come back. Either way, very interesting games. Have you noticed that 538 has by far the biggest chance on winning this thing to the Boston Celtics at 35%? They have them 49%, you know, even money to come out of the East. Does that surprise you? The Celtics are that the ELO that not ELO it's their Raptor model, but the five thirty eight loves them so much. Well, remember the Celtics are going to be the two seed. So remember what that means. I, I know I don't like the Celtics as the two seed because that means they're probably going to play the Nets. I don't like it that too much. Then the two seed, if everything goes to chalk, the two seed plays the three seed. That's the defending champion Bucks. <laughs> I don't a hard know. Road. That's a hard, and then of course you have to play potentially the one seed or the four seed. No, I I think the two. No, I don't like the Celtics there at all. This, this is always what I'm most interested in with the pre-playoff forecast is the discrepancy between the quality mm-hmm. of the team, underlying quality of the team, and the road they have to play. So I I don't know how much this is sim based because if it was sim based, you'd think it'd be picking up on having to go through the Nets and the Bucks, which sure does sound like a rough road to go. All right, well that stuff all starts tonight. NBA playoffs are off and running. You know, six months from now, we'll be to the NBA Finals, and we can talk about that. All right, guys, that has been two quarters of Court and Moneyball. We still have two quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the third quarter now. We're going to do a short quarter, and we're delighted to have here with us a repeat guest. This time of year, we start thinking about Benjamin Robinson and the work he does on the NFL draft. We're in the month of April. Two weeks from now, we're going to be, you know, draft eve. The show will go up draft eve. So we're running out of time to talk about the NFL draft. We thought about you this morning, Benjamin. Say, hey, we need to hear a little bit about the draft. So first, thank you for making time and jumping on the show with us. Good to see you. Good to see you guys as well. Good to be back. Part two. So listen, man, you, you, you're, you're well known around NFL draft circles for grinding the mocks. It's a, it's a wisdom of crowds of sort platform that you've built years ago now and get a lot of attention for. You guys listening can follow Benjamin. His Twitter handle is at Benj underscore Robinson, at Benj underscore Robinson. And um, tell us a little bit about, you start running these these mocks and at least collect data from the mocks, you know, almost a year ago. And then they really pick up steam and it's fun to watch players rise and fall. It really helpful to set our expectations for where players go. You know, you've, you've fed me stuff on Twitter before giving me like longhorns and it's always kind of sobering because if you read the longhorn boards, they think their guys going, you know, maybe late one second round. And you'll look at Benjamin's mocks. Like he'll be a third round, fourth round kind of guy. And of course your mocks are always right. So Tell us what you're working on this year. What what are you seeing? What are you thinking about? What do you think the lead stories are and what you're seeing in your mocks? So, yeah, the, the big story this year is when the first quarterback's going to be taken. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, I think there's a decent chance that no quarterback might go in the top 10. Um, How long has it been since no quarterback's gone in the top 10? That feels like a rare. Maybe 2013, I want to say, that EJ Manuel. Uh, draft. Uh, I'm not sure, but it's been a while. Um, so. Well, also, it's not just how long, but the the quarterbacks draft stock has risen so much in recent years. So the trend is so much that way. It's kind of sobering to see it to see it bounce back. 
Yeah, so I was just looking today at a document that was sent to us about a mock draft. I think it was pro football focus maybe or somebody sent something. They have three quarterbacks going in the top 10. And so why is there so much uncertainty this year? I mean, I look, I'm actually going to take if, – if someone would give me even money right now, I'll use the Cade Massey rule. When that clock starts ticking, these guys rush for the quarterbacks. And if one goes in the top 10, they're all going fast. So, what? I mean, Benjamin, how do you, how do you think about just the massive uncertainty around it? Mm-hmm. I'd say that I struggle to see three quarterbacks in the first round. If there were three quarterbacks in the top 10, um, <laughs> that would be – I think that would be really surprising. Um, I think this year the quarterback class from an evaluation perspective is not viewed nearly as highly as we've been used to in recent years. No. Even had the kind of Joe Burrow esque rise up the boards quarterback who was kind of out of nowhere, uh, uh, Kenny Pickett. He's a, um, he went, we both are University of Pittsburgh uh, grads at this point. Um, but even him, and I think that when you look at the kind of big boards, the rankings of players by talent, um, you know, the quarterbacks are in the, the 20s. And so you can expect a bump for some of these players, maybe a 10, 10 rank bump, but. Uh, the I think the thing that's really surprising people in this draft was what we heard at the end of last year was that the COVID season had pushed some players to return to school and that this would be a bumper crop of players. It turns out that I think potentially the distribution of talent has shifted to be less top-heavy and more just broad-based. Um, so what we're seeing this year is that there are a lot of linemen. It wouldn't surprise me if the first five picks out of the top 10 or maybe five of the top 10 players were offensive or defensive linemen. Okay. Um, so you're going to see that be a big trend in this year's draft, an emphasis on the line, because you'll see that the, the big power positions, quarterback, you know, edge is going to be represented in that. But quarterback, I think I struggle to see it. For football focus, maybe they're trying to get people excited and get some people talking. But, uh, got me excited that, and talking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I just think that the, the, the talent the pool of this draft is not as strong as quarterback, which is not as exciting, true. but if you're a football fan, You'll love the players in this draft. There's lots of players to help teams that are, have established talent. Well, if this is true, it's going to be the, the, the exception that proves the rule. This is going to be the limiting case on the, the mass hysteria around quarterbacks if it doesn't happen. It's, it, because it's just it's so reliable every year. The, the most extreme case we had on the show was the Kyler Murray year, where in December we don't know whether he's going to play football. And then well, maybe he's then he decides to go pro in football. And then it's going to be a first round pick maybe. And, you know, just drifts, doesn't, he flies up the board, ends up going off number one. Anyway, so Kenny Pickett is expected to be, where would you say Kenny Pickett's going to go in the draft? He's probably the top rated quarterback, hand size notwithstanding. Where do you think he's going to end up? You know, I think the ceiling for him uh, is probably Carolina Panthers as pick number six. Oh, uh, the, the owner of the Panthers is also a University of Pittsburgh alum, David Pepper. He's the name of the Carnegie Mellon Business School. Really, right. really smart guy. Um, and this, I think his his floor, if I had to guess, is probably the Steelers pick twenty. Um, but he has competition. Can you pick it? Malik Willis, quarterback from Liberty, started his career at Auburn. Um, has some very intriguing profile when it comes to how yeah. he plays football. He uh, loves to take deep shots. He is not as efficient as uh, a player. When you look at the data, he's, he's got a lot of raw talent there, really athletic, can run the ball, um, great escapability. Um, I think people are looking at him as a potential Josh Allen type of player 
a guy yeah. who didn't really put it together in college, but if you give him an opportunity in the pros, he could do it. Um, but there's a lot of uncertainty there. Josh Allen was an outlier in college. He was an outlier even as a pro. So is it a smart idea to chase an outlier or to chase maybe a more established guy like Kenny Pickett who started for four or five years? So Benjamin, you mentioned, you mentioned uncertainty. How much attention do you pay that in the way you report out these mocks? Presumably some players, even with the same expected spot in the draft might have different variants around that. And that reflects, you know, a real thing in the NFL draft room. So is that part, do you, re, do you think about that very much? Do you report that out? Do you, do you, do you characterize these players on that second dimension, the variance around the expectation? Um, not as much in my public reporting. I used to do it, but um, in terms of the, so I have a public model that you can find on grindingthebox.com. Uh, but then I also have a private model that I use to, consult with teams around and that kind of takes in some more special sauce when it comes to uh, the different kind of variation that you see in the mocks. Um, it's kind of a little bit of a, you know, the more data you get technically, the, the lower the variance is, but we know that's not the case when it comes to stuff that's really hard to predict. Like the graph. Right. Right. So yeah, to me, it's, it's more about looking at the data and kind of giving the best estimate to the public. Results. But I do okay. think about that a lot. Yeah, I guess I think one of the things that makes this kind of mock drafting or, or drafting prediction that much more difficult is you're not just trying to actually kind of incorporate uncertainty into which players are actually the best within their particular position, but also the team decision making, the extent to which teams are drafting kind of out of like sort of positional specific positional need versus kind of best player available. How much do you kind of build that into your modeling? How much do you kind of observe that kind of what t- teams doing positional need versus kind of best player available. And does that kind of change in later rounds versus earlier rounds? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of hard to bake that in. I think sometimes that's already baked into how people think about the mock drafts. Um, the thing that I look at a little bit more, and I'm trying to make a mock draft myself, not necessarily just the rankings is which teams tend to kind of reach quote unquote on players. So draft players, you know, earlier than their expectation or and players, teams that tend to kind of try to find value, they tend to wait on guys or let guys fall to them. Right. The thing is, is that regimes change so much too. So if a new regime comes in, how do you approach that? Um, so yeah, to me, I, I really own most of my value, I think probably in the first two days of the draft. The third day of the draft is kind of overall player valuation. I think it makes sense that like top 100, those guys get a lot of eyeballs. And we have to remember that the team's draft boards are a lot smaller than the public draft board, which is everybody, because uh, it's a lot easier to select one player out of five than it is to select one player out of a hundred. Um, so the team boards are going to be really, they're going to vary quite a lot later in the draft because the pool players are just going to be smaller. Mm-hmm. So some teams might not even have a guy on their board. And so if I told them, Hey, this guy, you picked him three rounds early. They're like, they'll say, well, we didn't have another guy. And uh, he was a guy that we liked the most. So, right. Yeah. So Benjamin, talking about teams, you know, we look at your work because it's interesting, because it's fun, because it helps us set expectations so we can debate, whatever. But there's a serious side of it as well, and that is the value that teams derive from it. Um, talk a little bit about how teams do use this information, whether it's from you or some other source of their own models. How are teams, because it matters to them in a way it doesn't matter to us. And some people might think it's just fun and games. It's more than just fun and games. But can you tell us how you think they're using it? So. I know teams use it. Um, I was at the NFL Combine this year and had talks with multiple different teams. And so this is a well-established part of 
people's process, whether it's a part of the analytical process is sort of a separate matter, but teams do look at mock drafts. They also do perform internal exercises. An example that I have uh, talked about before is an example from that same uh, 20, I think this is the 2019 draft, or yeah, 2020 draft, actually. It's the Cleveland Browns. This is public information where, as a part of their process, they take uh, mock drafts and they create probabilities around them. And then when they're about to make a pick, they use both the scouting side to develop their board. And they also use in the quantitative side to evaluate players. They also use mock drafts to value players about when they might go. And so the Browns are obviously a pretty shrewd front office when it comes to analytics. You know, Paul DiPodesta, former Moneyball guy, Andrew Barry, former, former Philly guy, um, has a computer science master's from Harvard, all of that. Um, but they made a trade um, with the Indianapolis Colts that year to trade down with the draft player from LSU. Um, and they used, um, they talked about this, they used mock drafts and the expertise of their scouting staff to kind of get a handle of if we move down, which player we, we want, player we're targeting, is he still going to be there? Yeah. So um, they use that as established part of their process. Some teams are more about it than others. Um, so it varies quite a bit, just like everything. But there are some teams that have it as a very well-established part of their analytical process. You just don't hear about it a lot because you don't hear about anything a lot Right. They keep that stuff under wraps for sure. Well, talk about how confident they should be in mocks when they're making those kinds of assessments. Those are really big decisions. Like, can we take this trade, move back 10 spots and still get the guy we want? And the models say, well, 67% chance or whatever. When you look at the performance of your model, whether it's a public or the private one, this is something you've been refining for years. How, how does it perform? How do you measure that? And how would you judge its performance? So yeah, it's really hard. Um, you know, I want to be as accurate as I can be, but also know that we're relying on public information and the teams have a lot more information than the public does. So every now and then, as I see a player fall down the boards, I go, oh no, oh no, like, what did I do wrong? But in reality, like, it's, your, there's, it's a reflection on you, Benjamin. Yeah, exactly. Um, but you know, it's a reflection of the public. Um, so yeah. every now and then you you might miss on a player who there's like a medical issue that hasn't been discussed publicly or it takes a long time for the mock drafts to assess that information. You know, I look at the difference between, um, and I said this the last time I was on, I want to be really, it's less about being right on for me than being my, having my errors normally distributed. For your audience, right, that means I just want my errors to be as kind of, nor- as like easily kind of explainable by, uh, by like random variants. Like, you don't want to be making systematic mistakes. I don't want to be making systematic mistakes. Yeah. Um, and so to me, there are moments in the draft where something might structurally change. But my hope is at the end of the day that I'm, 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 not, I'm not hitting a hole in one. I want to be around the hole. And as long as I'm, I'm with that, I'm happy. So give us, give, us, give us anything precise you have. You may not have it on you. But if we look at who you have, like Pickett, expectation, let's just say he's 11. What's the era around that? If we're on 90% confidence interval for where Pickett goes, and God, this isn't going to be normal because, you know, they miss a slot. They don't need quarterbacks for a while. They drift over here. But in general, when I think Pickett 11, I should be thinking, well, it's 90% Pickett, you know, 7 to 15. Is that kind of, you know, how, how should I think about it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely some chance that he goes in the top 10. But I think it has to start there. Like I said, kind of Carolina Panthers – all the other teams in the top 10, top five, top of the top of the draft really don't have quarterbacks. They're kind of the first team that I can think of, but there's a chance that he goes at, at two potentially if the Lions really wow. lost. So that's kind of the top 
of his, but I think he could also be at the end of the first round. I struggle to see Kenny Pickett falling out of the first round. He's kind of the top consensus quarterback when it comes to the box. Man, that just reminds me, Benjamin, how hard this is that you're this thing you're trying to do. I mean, there's just so much intrinsic uncertainty. Um, and so it actually it really speaks to how you add value for all of us is that you're reducing that uncertainty, but it's irreducible at some point. So you've taken it as far as you can. So good luck navigating that. Good luck with your work. Thank you for making time for us today. We'll be watching you for the next couple of weeks. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. And uh, look forward to being on after the draft. Absolutely. Benjamin Robinson, grinding the mocks. You can find him at Benj underscore Robinson at Benj underscore Robinson. That is Q3. We still have another quarter to go. In fact, we have a great interview on the biomechanics in sports. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the fourth quarter now. During the time of pandemic, this has become our interview segment. That may change soon, by the way, but for now, Q4 is our interview segment. We're delighted to welcome onto the show for the first time, Jimmy Buffy. Jimmy is a biomechanical engineer, and he is the CEO founder of Reboot Motion. Reboot Motion. He is, by his own estimation and ours, at the cutting edge of the biomechanical revolution in sports. He's especially focused on baseball, but I think he dabbles elsewhere and probably will be dabbling more in the future. The biomechanical revolution in sports. So that's what we're here to talk about. Now, Jimmy Buffy, first, thanks for being here, man. Good to see you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you guys. Well, we're excited to have you. We try to stay on top of sports science and sports technology, and we've been hearing about biomechanics increasingly over the last year. It feels like it's one of the real frontiers. It, and, we, you know, sports science, we've been aware of from the beginning as being a very important frontier. But this is kind of a specialized emerging area, biomechanics. And so you're smack in the middle of it, and we want to hear more about it. Why don't we give people real quickly more on your background so they know where you're coming from? Because you're not just some engineer that's like playing in a lab somewhere and happens to be trying to sell business into sports. You've been in something, you are all of those things. <laughs> We've also been in sports. So talk a little bit about your, your path, because notably, you're a part of that, that big R&D and analytics team that got built by the Dodgers a few years ago, right? Yeah, that was a ton of fun. Um, forever grateful to the Dodgers for giving me a shot. My old boss, Dr. Doug Fearing, my old partner, Dr. Megan Schroeder. It was so much fun. Um, and now on to a new chapter, which is also very fun. But uh, yeah, so I'll try to keep my path brief. It could be a very long story, but... Sure, sure. <laughs> I'll try to keep it relatively... It's yet to be written, Jimmy. Most of it's yet to be written. So this is just <laughs> pro Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, so my undergraduate degree, and this actually ended up turning out to be more useful than I thought it would be, but my undergraduate degree was mechanical and aerospace engineering at Notre Dame. Um, I originally thought I was going to work on airplanes. I had an internship at GE Avio Aviation in Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, but then I decided to do biomechanics. Uh, mm -hmm. So then I went into my PhD doing biomedical engineering with a focus in biomechanics. Uh, hey, real quickly, Jimmy, what pulled you to biomechanics, especially if you had this other interest in aerospace and aviation? Why biomechanics? Especially as someone 
who's never been drawn to that field? Like, what is it that pulls one into biomechanics? You know, I think it was always kind of the sports thing. Um, you know, even growing up as a little kid, I was a pitcher in Little League. I'm not very tall. You probably can't tell from Zoom, but I'm not very tall. I couldn't throw very hard, but I bought a book um, by Tom House, actually, like 20 or 25 years ago. And what's funny is now Tom House is, uh, is in the same space as me, which is why, because he inspired me so many years ago. Right. Um, but I bought a book that was something along the lines of the science of pitching by Tom House. And I had just always been really interested in how we can use science to really optimize how our bodies perform. Yep. And honestly, like when I started uh, college in 2004, biomechanics wasn't even really a thing that you could do. Like, you know, there was like biomaterials and stuff like that. But at Notre Dame, there wasn't even like a biomechanics degree. So mm-hmm. I didn't even know it was a thing you could do until a few years into my undergraduate degree. Um, and then finally, you know, it was like my junior year, I had this internship doing airplane stuff, but I always in the back of my mind was like, biomechanics sounds awesome. So I just made the leap. And I was like, I, even though my under, undergraduate degree was this thing, let me try and make the leap to biomechanics for a PhD. Okay. Okay. And then you went on to do PhD work at Northwestern, right? Yeah. Yeah. And this, oh man, this could also be a long story, but very briefly, I started my PhD at Northwestern working on prosthetic hands because there was no way to do sports biomechanics at Northwestern at the time. Um, What ended up happening was as I was studying prosthetic hands, I started looking into the forearm and the elbow and I started to to discover baseball pitching research about the forearm and the elbow. And a few years into my PhD, I was able to uh, work with my advisor to switch my track from prosthetic hands into actually studying baseball pitching. Was there any, was that, was that, was that slumming at all? Did the, did the academics look down on in my, in some fields, you know, economics, social yeah. sciences, stats, they kind of look down on sports research. At yeah. least they have historically. So it's a slow move uphill. Is it the same in biomechanics? It was like, well, we'll let you do it on pitchers if you want to. Well, it, I think, so my advisor, Dr. Wendy Murray from Northwestern was an awesome advisor and she thought it was really cool. What she warned me about was it might be difficult to get a job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So she was like, I'll let you do this thing, but I'm just warning you, it might be difficult to get a job because also, you know, academic job, academic job, sports job, because at the time (laughs) biomechanics wasn't even really a thing in baseball. Like there was one, uh, Dr. Glenn Fleissig and ASMI was really the only place in the country doing baseball biomechanics. So really, it was like, that was your option. And if you didn't get a job or a postdoc there, you were, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't do it. Um, wow. So yeah, because this was back in like 2010, when I was contemplating this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are some, there are some baseball by or um, baseball computer vision companies like Kinetrax, if you've heard of Kinetrax, they were just mm-hmm. getting off the ground mm-hmm. in 2010, 2013. But the space was super nascent. So there mm-hmm. just wasn't a lot of opportunities either in academia or in the sports world for someone like me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what kinds of insights did they give you a dissertation for, give you a doctorate for? So what, like you do a thesis, a biomechanical thesis on pitchers. What yep. do you say in that? Yeah, well, so the, both of the, you know, a, a tough thing being that there wasn't that much done pr- prior, except for the work done by Dr. Glenn Fleissig, um, there just wasn't a lot there to like build on, but at the same time, it was a lot of open space. Yeah. So I was like able a blessing to- and a curse, right? Yeah. You yeah. Just yeah. Go answer yeah. this question. You had to like, so it was very, 
it was very open-ended. So I used um, uh, a methodology that was, had already gotten traction in like analyzing running and analyzing walking called computed muscle control. So it's a way to estimate muscle activity during a human movement using a computer simulation. So what my PhD, what I did was I used this estimate of muscle activity in the forearm to try to better isolate the force on the ulnar collateral ligament in the elbow to better understand injury risk in pitchers. So it was very much a proof of concept of if we can better understand forearm muscle forces, can we better understand forces on the elbow ligament that pitchers often tear when they get Tommy John? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How would you characterize the, the breakdown in your current work between injury prevention and performance maximization? And is there a tension there? Can they be pursued at the same time? Or are you focused more one or the other? That is an awesome question. <laughs> um, so yeah, this has actually been a journey for me of how I got to this point. Um, you know, my PhD was all about injury prevention. It was all about, can we understand the forces on the UCL, the ulnar collateral ligament of the elbow. Um, then when, you know, I, I studied in my PhD. I got Jimmy, by the, I'm assuming that's a, a known to be important ligament in pitching. Like you were going right at a fundamental problem. In yeah, pitching. yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit more background for people who aren't familiar. There's a very famous surgery that pitchers get called Tommy John surgery. All right. We're on Tommy John surgery. We, we right. all know Tommy John surgery. Yeah. So really what happens is there's a little ligament on the inside of your elbow and pitching tends to stress that ligament more than any other activity. So pitchers tend to tear that ligament, mm-hmm. you know, you know, a, a really at a really high rate. So it's a problem in baseball because like when you tear that ligament, you get this Tommy John surgery of which, you know, it used to be there was an 80% success rate. I'm sure that success rate is like creeped up, but you're generally like you're out for a year and there's a chance you'll never return to your pre-injury form. So it's a big problem for pitchers. Um, so that was, that was the entry point for me. It was, try, can we better understand this injury and this injury mechanisms? Yep. 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 And at some point you've, you're, you've, you realize, well, there's other, there's, there's high performance as well, and maybe they're related and maybe they're separate. Yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, when I first started, the primary focus was um, reducing injury risk. Uh, but it, it was a journey over the course of my time at the Dodgers. So the first thing is just the data sets are just not very good for understanding this injury risk because you never know exactly when the first incidents occurred. Like, you know, pitchers often pitch through pain, pitch through injury for a while before something pops. Um, and furthermore, like the data, the data sets that teams provide to the leagues, you know, there's just a lot of messiness in the data. So, and there's also a lot of messiness in like the motion capture data that you need to use to study it. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of messiness in the data on both sides. So you end up finding like maybe some really small effect sizes, but then, but then you get to the point of like, oh, sorry. Oh, okay. (laughs) I wasn't sure if someone wanted to say something. Um, that's just me and Eric trying to coordinate our, uh, we, we both have a zillion questions. So just ignore yeah. us, just ignore us. Yeah. So, I mean, and I'm sure, you know, this sounds like something that you will have dug into a bit on this show, but not only like, so you get these like statistical, statistically significant or not results where the effect sizes might be small. And then you get to the point of like, okay, like this pitcher is at a 14% risk of injury. This pitcher is at a 13% risk of injury, but does that mean we 
use pitcher the pitcher at a lower risk of injury over the pitchers at a higher risk of injury when the high, the pitcher who's a higher risk of injury is just a better pitcher. So then it gets on into all this decision-making stuff and there's just all sorts of messiness there. Um, so it's just a really hard thing to study and implement. And furthermore, if you're trying to take this type of thing to the coaches and the players, they don't really, I mean, yes, they want to avoid getting hurt, but what they really care about is performing better. So like you, so you tell a coach and a player, Hey, like this thing is like increasing your risk of injury by 1%. And the coach is like, I don't care. <laughs> he's throwing hundred miles an hour and he's striking out 10 people per nine innings. Like, I don't care. <laughs> um, okay. so, so, Jimmy, so, yeah, yeah so, Jimmy, let me ask you a question here. Just about one of the things I think about a lot is um, let's call it proxy measurement, which means if you could stick someone in an fMRI machine yeah. every day and measure their, you know, ligament in their elbow, then you could obviously observe some sort of degradation over time. But of course yeah. you don't want to do that. Yeah. So is one of the, goals of reboot motion to in some sense use i'll call it less expensive less invasive motion data which mm-hmm. possibly i mean to say it has the same predictive power as sticking someone into a daily fmri that's probably not realistic but is part of the goal to come up with what i would call you know easily measurable metrics proxies motion data that can give similar predictive power to an fmri scanner yeah, I mean, maybe not similar predictive power because, you know, the, the, the thing that's missing in a lot of this stuff is understanding what I was doing in my PhD it was like, what are the muscles doing? What are the properties of the ligament? But at the same time, yes, a daily check in to have some information, which as opposed to no information, for sure. Um, so yes. That re- raises the question of what exactly it is you're doing. And I realize we've jumped <laughs> right. past it, which is this yeah. markerless motion, right? So talk to even because th- when you see what y'all are doing, you see the reports, the pictures are so compelling and the story comes alive, but there's, so there's a lot of analytics and even theory and, you know, it's a good thing you've got you involved with your PhD, but to begin with, there's technology. So you guys are capturing this in a way that's different from at least historically the way it's been captured. Yeah. So one of the reasons why biomechanics has taken off so much over the course of the past five or so years is because of the advancement from marker-based motion capture technology to marker-less motion capture technology. Mm-hmm. So if people aren't familiar, marker Just, yeah. That was what I was going to ask. I was going to ask, uh, what, I have an idea what a marker is, but why embarrass myself? Let, why don't you just tell us? Yeah. So um, marker-based motion capture technology is you have a bunch of cameras that are tuned to track little reflective, literal markers like balls that you just stick all over somebody's body. So uh, you, you may have seen this type of thing for a video game or something like that, but someone stands in the middle of a group of cameras. Sometimes they're practically naked because <laughs> these markers have to stick directly onto the skin. And uh, the person does their movement and these cameras track the motion of these little reflective markers. And then the, the, the motion of those reflective markers is transformed into human motion, which we, we can then study. Um, the big advancement that's happened over the course of the past five to 10 years is computer vision technology. So now using machine learning algorithms, we can train these computers, these algorithms to recognize body parts. So the computer recognizes, oh, that is an elbow joint. That is a wrist joint. That's the head. That's the eyes. That's the air, ears. So now instead of needing to put markers on somebody, the computer vision algorithm actually can recognize those key points without markers. 
Mm-hmm. So now rather than having to go through this whole insane setup process, all a pitcher has to do is pitch in front of cameras. And then you use these computer vision algorithms to track the different body parts. And then we, in the same way that we could analyze the marker-based data, now we can analyze the marker-less motion data. Okay, so quick clarification. So great, no markers on the players, mm-hmm. helpful. But it, it, the, it, it's, it's still camera-dependent in some way, I'm yes. guessing. And I, but at the same time, I'm guessing that, and I, I gather from years of computer vision evolution, that with every year that goes by, the technology and the camera that's needed is either easier to acquire or less involved because the software gets better. So we're moving from right now, you have these super bunch of important cameras pointing and we're eventually going to just put a cell phone up and we'll, and that'll be adequate. We're already doing that. We're teams are already doing that. Companies are already doing that. We already have a proof of concept doing that. So yeah. Okay. So we're already there. We're already there. The future's now. Okay. Um, What? So what is your basic setup? And if you're going to work with a team or a player, yep. where do they go and where do you do this? Um, what has been crazy has been uh, in Major League Baseball, and now it's expanding to other sports. Um, teams are installing these computer these computer vision, or I guess these camera systems in their stadiums. Okay. So there's there's a couple of companies right now that are dominating that space. There's a company called Kinetrax. There's a company called Hawkeye, and there's a company called Simi. So right now, it's hard to say for sure, but a majority, definitely a majority of Major League Baseball teams have one of these camera systems installed in their stadiums. Okay. So they're just tracking this data on every single player as they're playing the game. Wow. Wow. So, Jim, let me ask you uh, just a question on that. I assume, by the way, it's a perfect – so I assume the Hawkeye, by the way, is the same Hawkeye as that creates the tennis, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the identification of where the ball lands and everything – what got you, I know you worked for the Dodgers, but what got you so attracted to baseball? And maybe that's not, maybe that's not all of uh, Reboot Motion's business. Like I could imagine mm-hmm. someone serving a tennis ball would love to have optimal transfer of motion. I can imagine someone shooting a soccer ball. I can imagine someone kicking a field goal in football. I can imagine someone shooting a puck in hockey. I can imagine yeah. we just saw the Masters. How about a golf swing? Yep. So yep. Um, is there anything... First of all, how much work are you doing outside of baseball? And secondly, does us, does it matter the specific sport or do the principles hold across all the sports? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. Um, I started in baseball because uh, really to me, the base, I mean, I, and I loved pitching. I was a pitcher growing up, but also to me, the baseball pitching motion is one of the most interesting motions because of just how fast the body parts move. Um, how fast the pitcher throws the ball, but then the precision with which the pitcher is supposed to, you know, move the ball around home plate. So combination of me liking pitching and it being a fascinating problem, but also the fact that the pitcher like 100% controls their environment. Right. right. You know, so it's like a, you know, there's a lot of things that make it a really attractive problem to solve. So that's why. by By the way, of all this, of all the sports that Eric listed, the one that feels most like that, I think would be golf. Yeah, 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 for sure. So golf, golf has been doing this for uh, a long time, right? Um, Especially marker. They were they were they were like the first people to put on this put on the suit yeah. and go down to golf world or whatever and get videotaped. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so yeah, so that's the reason why I started in pitching in my PhD because it was just and plus it had a very defined problem that was easy to start with, which is the Tommy John surgery, the, the Tommy John injury problem. So that's why I started in baseball. 
Um, the question of, you know, are we doing in other sports? How do you get from other sports to the principles hold in other sports? This is all a really like interesting nuanced discussion. So um, it I would say, do the principles hold in other sports? Yes and no. It kind of depends on the way that you analyze it. So, um, you know, the way, you know, often the way people will analyze biomechanics is they will try to amass as they all, they will sort of like do it in a more naive, uh, naive in the sense of like, um, naive from a physics perspective, they will try to use statistics, which I know you, you love to get at the crux of like what's going on. So they try to amass a big enough data set and then use, and then use statistics to figure out this is the significant thing here. This is the significant thing here. This is the difference here. So in that, and when you use statistics as the foundation for your analysis, it's not super generalizable because you just need a massive data set in other sports to understand the things that are significant and the things that are useful. Um, we actually approach it in a slightly different way. We approach it in a very physics centric way. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were asking me earlier about, you know, are we doing injury prevention or performance enhancement? And I told you I started as injury prevention, but I slowly migrated to performance enhancement. So, you know, this was over the course of all, you know, the past five or six years trying to figure out the best way to do this in, in a way that's both actionable and transferable and generalizable. So the way that we do it now is very physics-based, you know, you know, relying on my background in physics and mechanical and aerospace engineering, basically the same way you would analyze a robot or an engine, right? We put energy into the system, we put momentum into the system, and we want to see how do we get or what momentum and energy comes out of it. And then we can track all the way through and we can understand the efficiency of momentum transfer and energy transfer from the beginning to the end. So I real quickly, I just want to say to kind of to Eric, Eric, this reminds me more than anything else of our epidemiology conversations for the last two years, because there's the modelers kind of came from two camps. Said so that you're an epidemiologist right. with a lot of theory yeah. or you're right. just a great stats guy yes. who's just running a bunch of data. And Jimmy's saying, in his, predictably, coming from his background, he's working with the physics models, the theory side. And a big difference is that physics doesn't change um, one century to the next, whereas um, it turns out pandemics change and human behavior um, is a whole different question. But that's an interesting tension. And it's a good sobering reminder to those of us who are super statistics geared up and we think we can drop into kind of any universe and tell them what's going on. It's a good reminder that and we're academics, so we appreciate the theory, but it's, it's helpful to know that's where you're coming from, Jimmy. Eric was going to jump in. Yeah, I was just going to ask, so Jimmy, I think a lot of people might think that the dimensions of performance enhancement and injury prevention are probably more orthogonal than they really are. Because I would imagine if a pitcher right. pitches extremely efficiently, I'll just use your language, then he would also then potentially be using his muscles and ligaments properly and possibly be less likely to be injured. So is that right? Or are these two dimensions more you know, independent than I'm thinking? No, you're Yeah, that's exactly the way. That's exactly what we are. That's exactly our philosophy. Um, and the reason why we're analyzing the way we're analyzing, you know, because we're, you know, a lot of people will talk about movement efficiency in a very kind of subjective, abstract way. But that's what we literally analyze is movement efficiency. Are these force vectors going in the same direction or are they not going in the same Jeez. direction? Jeez, that sounds helpful. My gosh, that's cool. This, this, the, the chain you were talking about reminds me of a conversation we had last summer 
I think it was, I read a Bruce Feldman piece where he went out to Jordan Palmer's quarterback camp. And there were some guys out there running a lot of these kind of biomechanical analytics for the first time that we knew of in football. And we talked to them and it was about this chain. It all begins with the yeah. cleats on the ground and then it transfers legs, waist, yep. and the torso, et cetera. And you're talking about very much the same kind of thing in baseball and presumably you'd do the same thing if we talked about golf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to continue your question, uh, I think you were asking about other sports that we're dabbling in. So, you know, baseball is the primary sport that we're working in. Um, it's where it's my bread and butter. It's where I started. You know, it's where I have a lot of I know a lot of people. So baseball is where we're starting. But we have been dabbling um, in football and basketball. Uh, interestingly, you know, like jump shot uh, analysis, what we've been dabbling in. It's not so much about movement efficiency per se as like having your to use the same kind of terminology I used before having your force vectors pointed in the direction of the rim. <laughs> like, you know where you want the ball to go so we can line up things to make the ball go where you want it to go. So that's, mm-hmm. so it's a slightly different problem, but again, you know, from our physics based lens, we can try to, we try to like boil these things down to like directions and vectors. And can we line things up in certain ways? So Jim, Jimmy, one of the things that's interesting about this is, I think that from the, if, from the statistics side, we're always talking about like deviation from expectation yeah. or yep. like we can compare you to like the average guy or the top 10 guy or whatever. Yep. Yep. You're talking about something. I think that's a little different, which yes. is we're not going to compare it. Well, so here's the problem. Um, I mean, here's a problem. I think you're navigating. Where's the room for the idiosyncratic style? Yes. Because the statistician's probably going to come in and compare you to the prototype and there's no room for idiosyncrasy there. Yes. Whereas you might say, look, as long as you're, as long as the force vectors or whatever terms you just used, Jim, are going in the right direction, we don't care how you do this or that. Do I have that right? Yeah, you're nailing it. (laughs) So I think a really maybe tangible example let me see if i can describe this in a way that makes sense but obviously ask questions if what i'm saying doesn't make sense but so most pitchers when they throw the ball they th- if people are familiar with the term arm slot pitchers will throw the ball from like uh what would what some would term a three-quarters arm slot so your arm isn't quite like raised all the way over your head it isn't quite a siren armor it's like somewhere in between it's like a comfortable place you know slightly elevated your arm you're throwing the ball in this like three quarters um arm slot and you know 90 percent of pitchers 90 percent of the top pitchers are probably throwing the ball in this arm slot Mm -hmm. right but then you have a certain subset of pitchers you know clayton kershaw of the dodgers is an example ian anderson of the braves is an example where their arm slot is way over the top of their head you know their, their arm is like super high and what is useful about having that high arm slot, if people are familiar with the term vertical break, induced vertical break, that high arm slot tends to create more life on the fastball, more backspin, which yep. creates more rise, which gets more strikeouts. Yep. So oftentimes, if you try to do a traditional statistical analysis with biomechanics, you will say like Clayton Kershaw's high arm slot is outside the norm. Right. So maybe he should drop his arm slot. Ian Anderson's arm slot is outside the norm. So maybe he should drop his arm slot. But then if you drop their arm slot, you take away the life on their fastball that makes them really unique. And so you end up turning them from uh, an above average to, you know, Clayton Kershaw Hall of Fame pitcher into maybe a more average pitcher. Whereas Mm -hmm. the way that we do it, we try to look at 
are the force and torque vectors in your body lining up in an efficient way to add energy where that arm slot is. Mm-hmm. So that way we're trying to figure out, are you aligned mm-hmm. for your arm slot as opposed to do you match the norm for the population? And Jimmy, you feel as a PhD in biomechanics, yeah. you feel confident in your ability to make that assessment. Like you, this, as you say, efficiency might get thrown around a lot. It's not often going to be measured precisely. You're measuring it yeah. and you're giving a number and you're giving them yep. an objective supposedly object. And so you're confident you're able to do that. Like physics gives you the, and and your marker technology gives you the ability to do that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's very, you know, it's a very fundamental, well-studied physics physics concepts that have been the same since physics was invented. Well, the next question then would be how now you're now you've gone from technology to a physicist, and then eventually you have to be like a coach or a developer. Like how, yeah. how easy it is, or how easy or difficult is it for most players to make these changes for better alignment? Yeah, that is a great question. And it's, um, it's something that it's been part of our, my journey, our journey as Reboot Motion. Um, at first, when we started Reboot Motion, we were thinking that we would make a product for players. We would go to a player and say, here's your efficiency analysis. Here's where you're efficient. Here's where you're inefficient. I actually, I built a proof of concept in golf uh, when I first started. Um, that proof of concept is still, it's still in, in the, in the top drawer of the desk. We'll see you when I'm ready to bust, bust that out. Um, but yeah, um, my friend, I was like, okay, here's where you're efficient. Here's where you're inefficient. He's like, great. What do I do about it? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't know, figure it out. <laughs> Swing more efficiently. <laughs> Um, and as academics, we're familiar with that. Like, I'm happy to run the assessment, give them the report. If you ask me how to fix it, I'm like, well, get back to you in a couple of years. I work on that. Yeah. So this is why we switched our focus very quickly from being something for the player to being something for the coach. Yeah. Right. So now it's, so now that is our primary, um, uh, touch point is Jimmy, do you have to have technology open? Uh, amenable coaches, right? So some of these coaches are like, I don't want to see your reports. I don't want to talk about alignment. I know how to do these yeah. things. And is that, is that right? So there must be a generational, probably generational tension in coaches out there. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, I think that's just why it's really important to build stuff with empathy. You know, like, um, I don't know, when I first got to the Dodgers, one of the most important thing for me was you know, like, so if people aren't familiar with like the way, like a spring training environment, it, there's like a coach's lounge, right? And at the end of the day, the beginning of the day, before stuff starts, after stuff ends, there's like a coach's lounge. And if you sit in that lounge, you are just going to hear the most awesome, interesting conversations about anything and everything related to pitching and hitting a baseball and stealing and catching and whatever. So just trying to understand the way that they communicate and try mm-hmm. to use that same sort of language in the mm-hmm. analyses and just meet them. You know, one of the, actually, I think the failures of the biomechanics community over the past five to 10 years was not having enough empathy for coaches and trying to like force coaches to use the language of biomechanics, like shoulder abduction angle. What is a shoulder abduction angle, <laughs> you know, um, versus arm slot, right? I can say my shoulder abduction angle combined with my trunk tilt gives me the arm slot. Or I can just say arm slot. <laughs> you know? So you've had to learn to use different, I mean, just as simple as 
as simple and yet as challenging as just speak their language. Put this, yeah, I need yeah. to translate my physics into coaching lounge language. Yeah. And it's a constant work in progress. You know, I'll put out a new metric and a coach will be like, I don't know what that is. And then we talk back and forth and be like, oh, that's what that is. That's how we say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a constant process. So just quickly, Jimmy, um, you know, people might say you can't take efficiency to the bank. What is it that you've shown efficiency is predictive of? Is it predictive of reduced injury? Is it predictive of uh, maybe less variance in performance? Is it predictive of being able to throw the ball faster? Is it be able to more control? What are the downstream dependent variables from a statistician point of view that you can show that what you're measuring is predictive of that a sports franchise would care? Let's say baseball would care about. Yeah. So we are working... We just hired um, a data science intern to help us with all of this stuff. So we're just getting, so yeah, I mean, the really good point is like, we started from what we believe is very sound physics theory, but then we want to make sure that the physics theory holds up in practice. So that's what we're, what we're working on now. The, um, so to go back to the whole injury versus performance thing, like, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the theory is that if we move more efficiently, efficiently, we line things up. Uh, more absolutely, then um, we will reduce injury risk and improve performance by improving the energy momentum that gets transferred all the way through the body to the last thing that we care about, the ball and then the bat. So what we have been, so, all right, the injury stuff is still really, really hard to study because of the difficulty in constructing a solid injury data set. When did this person get hurt? Right. They first exhibit symptoms. Um, do we have a big, you know, like in any given year, however many pitchers get injured, it's not really that big of a sample size. Um, what we have been able to do is we have been able to show, you know, prediction I know is a very strong word in the statistics community, but we have, what, what we have been able to show is at least correlation, <laughs> um, so far. And we're working on actual like prediction, uh, correlation between a lot of the efficiency metrics that we're calculating and ball velocity. Because the idea is if we improve our efficiency, we transfer more energy and momentum to the pitching hand, more momentum to the ball, the ball goes faster. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of the coolest things that is showing up in the data that we thought would show up based on theory is the, you know, the force and the torque that your torso is creating, it's creating it in a certain direction. And the more aligned that torso is with the arm slot, the faster the ball goes, you know, the more energy you can transfer from the torso to the pitching arm. So that has been showing up as a very strong thing in our initial data sets and we're going to continue to explore it. So Mm -hmm. to try to answer your point very directly right now, we're really focused on how does improving efficiency improve fastball fastball velocity and bat speed. I would also imagine just one last thing, because I have a million questions, but I would imagine maybe a pitcher can stay in the game longer if he's more efficient. Right, exactly. It's either, you know, can you get more out of the same input or you can right. use less input and get the same output? That would be inter- that would be valuable for me. Yeah. Another validation of sorts is how often what you're reporting matches what these coaches are seeing. Yes. yes. And it reminds there we 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 say this thing often that Bill James said years ago, something like a good an analytics analytics should, you know, Match your intuition 80% of the time and surprise you 20% of the time. Yes. I'm curious how, what your experience has been with your models and these coaches. Yeah, exactly that. It's so awesome. Like when you start to boil these things down to physics, 
And then you start to line up the physics with the things that the coaches have been saying for 50 years. <laughs> so many of those things do line up. So really oftentimes um, the way I think about what we're doing is we're like putting a very specific number on something that someone might already be able to see with their eyes. Like, for example, you know, I'll just maybe try to use a really straightforward example, but something that has been intuitive for a long time is that you, if you a pitcher or a hitter creates more hip shoulder separation, so if you're able to create more counter rotation with the trunk relative to the lower half, you can transfer more energy from the legs to the torso and therefore more, more ball velocity, uh, more bat velocity. Mm-hmm. So you can see that with your eyes. You can see the guys that are able to like fully turn their hips towards home plate. And meanwhile, their chest is still pointed at second base. Like you can see that and it looks wild. And you can see the people who don't do that very well. What you can't see with your eyes is the degree or if someone is able, improves that from like, you know, negative 33 degrees to negative 36 degrees, that's really hard to see with your eyes. Or if someone has a, has a given day to your, uh, to your point about tracking certain things day over day, right? Maybe from one day to the next, we see like somebody's hip shoulder separation goes down one degree or two degrees. And the coach might not have been able to see that with their eyes, but we're able to flag it in our report. Then that can send to the training staff and we say, hey, is something going on with your hips today? Can we look into it? Right. That is awesome. Man, Jimmy, we could do this for a while and we need to let you go. Thank you for making time for the show. Thank you um, for sharing so much insight about Reboot Motion. We wish you the best with the work you're doing and come back and talk to us some more. Yeah, I would love it. Thank you so much. You guys asked awesome questions. This is a lot of fun. Good, good. Jimmy Buffy, founder and CEO of Reboot Motion, working especially in baseball, but across sports on the biomechanics of sport. One of the real frontiers we're seeing out there. That has been another two hours of sports analytics, another two hours of Wharton Moneyball. This half hour with my buddy and partner, Eric Bradlow. We've got thanks from Eric. Thanks from Audie Weiner, who was not with us today. Thanks for Shane Jensen, who was in for half the show. And for the boss man, Matty Dass, the associate boss man, Dion Simpkins. Thank you guys for listening. Come back and join us next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.